Well, good afternoon. Uh, we're going to spend some time together now thinking about why we can trust the Bible and um, how we can, I guess, engage with friends who might have skeptical questions about the Bible or just that that general sense that we come across a lot when we meet people, talk to them about the Bible, and they think, well, it's not true. You know, it's all been changed, hasn't it? You can't actually really rely on it. Um, so we're going to uh, look at some of those questions together and think about, um, about how the Bible actually kind of stands up to those, those questions and issues. The Bible is, um, a, a, I guess, a controversial book where... Um, living in a world where people will think that we're completely, completely weird for basing our lives and decisions on an old book. We're also living um, in a world where there are people who are still absolutely desperate to have the opportunity to read this book. A number of years ago now, um, Frog, my husband and I, were um, we were at university, we were dating, we weren't married, um, but we were on a mission trip and we'd felt God calling us to go on a kind of prayer trip predominantly to Afghanistan. The Taliban had just taken um, about 75% of the country and there was still a war going on there. This is before 9-11, so that ages me uh, somewhat. And... Um, we were planning to go initially really just go and pray and intercede and see what opportunities opened up for us to share the gospel. We got visas to go as journalists and we represented the Oxford University newspaper as their Afghanistan correspondents. That is how we got the visas. And um, the night before we left, I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw... Um, myself, Frog, and the other friend who was on this team, it was just three of us, I saw us giving Bibles to Taliban leaders. So on the morning of our flight, um, we had to fly into a neighboring country and do a long sort of road cross country and train trip to actually get into Afghanistan over the border because of the war. But on the morning of the flight, I shared this encouraging dream with fellow teammates. I think we're meant to take Bibles, guys. This was the dream. And um, being fantastic friends and followers of Jesus, they said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So at that, moment, at that point in London, there was a scripture gift mission sort of store that you could go to. And it had every translation, every language the Bible has been translated into. It had printed copies just there that you could go and get. And so we filled our rucksacks with New Testaments and four copies of the Bible in the language. So uh, it's a long story, don't have time to tell um, all the stories of how we got through the border, how um, we ended up um, meeting a contact who was an international journalist who told us which cafe we needed to go to in order to get an interview with the top brass of the Taliban. But we found ourselves there one afternoon um, meeting the, the person who made all the kind of introductions to journalists. And he said, be back here tomorrow at four o'clock and I'll take you to the military headquarters. So the next day, there we were at four o'clock in the afternoon with Bibles in our little bags. And we got into this car, he took us into a car, drove us to the outskirts of the city 
and we were invited into the military headquarters of the Taliban and we met the education minister, the foreign minister and the religion minister who called himself the keeper of the Holy Quran. So we spent um, hours interviewing them for a piece that we did actually then go on to write about who the Taliban are, what their theology is, you know, what motivates them. But we also began to transition the conversation into the space of Jesus Christ. And they, they all had, um, their lackeys all had sort of Kalashnikovs and, you know, we really, we really were uh, wondering whether this might be the end for us. So as the conversation goes on, the moment comes to really start to speak about Jesus. And Frog says, we've bought you a gift. And we think this is the most precious gift that one human being can give another human being. And then our friend Miles said, it's the Bible. We kind of all looked up and waited to be shot. And there was a, a, a deathly silence. And the keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister, began to speak. And the education minister spoke English. He was translating. And this is what the guy said. He said, I know exactly what that book you're talking about is. And I have been praying to God for years that I could have a Bible, that I could read the Bible. Thank you for traveling so far to bring me a Bible. Praise God. At the heart of one of the most sort of crazy regimes that you would think was against Jesus was someone daily on their knees asking God for a Bible. That experience really um, changed my perceptions about the Bible. I had been studying theology at, um, at university in, the con in a context where there were a lot of skeptical people. I was told by um, my professor at the end of my first year, you could, you could do really well in theology, but you need to give up your very naive evangelical ideas about the Bible first. And if you don't, you're not going to do very well. Uh, that actually didn't end up working out, <laughs> as, he, as he suggested, because God is bigger than, than any professor. And um, praise God, through that experience of actually studying really critical approaches to Scripture, actually studying what skeptics who don't believe in the Bible, what their best arguments against it were, I left university more persuaded than ever that God's word is true, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, and the words of life that can transform us are contained within it. So as Christians, I believe we can have real confidence in the Bible. And I just want to take us a few, a few reasons for that today to hopefully equip you personally, but also to help and enable you to talk to others about the Bible. So let's just start with um, what some of the objections to the Bible are. You might hear something like, well, you know, we can't just believe it because the Bible says it. Hasn't, hasn't the Bible sort of been changed? Hasn't it been corrupted? 
how can you really just take it at face value? Aren't you very naive to do that? Now, um, one of the reasons that people often say that is that there's this idea that, um, you know, the Bible was written ages after the events that it recorded. And so, you know, in that time between the Bible kind of being written and the events that happened, people got in and changed what what was actually written down. So there's a time, if you like, between what was written down and the events occurring. And that's a moment of vulnerability for the truth to be lost. That's what people say. And then they'd also say, look, it's not just that, that there's that time difference, but there's also a time difference between when the Bible was originally written and when the surviving manuscripts were written. You see, um, the Bible was transmitted by people, scribes, handwriting it and, and um, translating it into lots of languages, but handwriting it so that it could go throughout the known world. So the Gospels, Paul's letters, you know, the whole New Testament, that, that's kind of how it spread. But actually, when you look at the evidence, what you see is that there is not a long time period between the events happening and the events being recorded. And there is not a long time between the events that were recorded and the surviving manuscripts that exist. So the whole idea that it must have been changed hangs on there being a long time between the events happening and them being written down, between them being written down and surviving manuscripts. But actually those times have um, been shown by evidence not to be long. Let me just give you um, an example. So if we're talking about ancient literature, we might talk about a writer like Plato, a Greek author, or a Roman writer like Caesar, or uh, a, another Greek author like Homer. And when you look at their writings, what you see is that the time difference between when they wrote and surviving copies actually existing are quite long, but they're not considered to be long within um, ancient, uh, ancient studies. So with Plato, there's a time difference of 1,300 years. With Caesar's writings, there's a time difference of 950 years. With Homer, there's a time difference of 400 years. With the New Testament, there's a time difference of between 25 and 50 years of when it was written and actual surviving manuscripts. So you can look at a, a papyrus of John's Gospel in the John Rylands um, Library up in the north of England, and that's from the beginning of the first century. That's within decades of when John wrote his Gospel. Why is that important? It's really important because there isn't time for someone to have got in there and changed what John wrote, corrupted it, and then, uh, and then had that sent around. There just isn't the time. And the, and the same issue uh, with, with regard to when the events happen. If you think Jesus was crucified around AD 33, John's gospel is the latest gospel to have been written. And that was written probably in 90 AD. So within the lifetime of the people who experienced the life and ministry of Jesus, it was already written down. And that's within an, a culture of an oral tradition where people were used to learning orally and listening to, um, to things being, being passed on orally. 
So that's the, the first reason I want to suggest to you that we can have confidence in the Bible and it just doesn't stack up with the evidence that this is a text that has been in some way corrupted or changed. We could look at um, quotations of the New Testament contained in the writings of the early church fathers. We could look at the sheer scale and number of manuscript witnesses to the New Testament. So we're not actually talking about five or six witnesses to this text. We're not talking about five or six manuscript copies of it having been preserved. We're talking about thousands, over 5,000 just in Greek that give us confidence that what we read today is what was written, is what was originally given and hasn't been changed or corrupted. Now, a sort of second obvious question that people might have um, about the New Testament, about the Bible, and whether we can trust it is, well, okay, we might be able to make a really good case that the text hasn't been corrupted, but just because the text hasn't been corrupted doesn't mean we can trust that what it says is actually true. So we might be able to make a case that, you know, Homer's Iliad was accurately written down. That doesn't mean we believe that everything that Homer wrote actually happened in history or is, is, you know, something that we should base our lives on. So how can we not just trust the texts, the manuscripts, but actually trust the content of what was written? And I want to just um, suggest really two um, ways of thinking about this for us today that can hopefully again give us confidence in speaking about God's word. One is around historical verification, historical evidence that what is contained within the text is actually true and it's verifiable from other sources. And the other is around the sort of supernatural content of the New Testament and why we should believe that. You know, sometimes people will say, look, you know, I don't really believe that people walk on water. So, you know, when I come to read the New Testament, I, 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 I come across this rather strange passage about Jesus walking on water or, um, you know, healing a blind person. And that alerts me to the fact that maybe this isn't actually true. I can't really trust the content because of the miracles. Why don't we start there and then we'll go on to, to um, how we can verify historically. So with miracles, again, this is a question that um, I've experienced in loads of different contexts. Um, in universities, I've been asked this question by taxi drivers, I've been asked this question by gang members in the inner city in Peckham. This is a question that some people, you know, do find really concerning. So why should we trust the New Testament to be accurate and true when it contains stories of miracles? I think the first thing I would say to that is that the Bible and the New Testament describe the world that you and I know and experience, a world where the law of gravity exists, the world where when people have a baby, it's because they've had sex, the world where when people die, they rot, they don't walk out of a tomb and leave it empty alive again. 
okay? The Bible actually describes that world that you and I know, and the world of the natural laws that we experience, the law of gravity, law of cause and effect, and all of that. And when the Bible describes miraculous things happening, it describes them happening in our world. In other words, when Mary says to her boyfriend, Joseph, I'm pregnant, he doesn't think, we're in the Bible now, people. It must be a virgin conception. He doesn't think, oh yeah, it's going to be a miracle. No, Joseph understands how babies are made. And when his girlfriend tells him she's pregnant, he assumes, well, I haven't slept with her, so it must be someone else. It's only later when an angel speaks to him and reveals to him that this is actually the incarnation of God. This is a miracle. This is God revealing himself, the one who's the author of all the laws of nature, revealing himself in a unique way, miraculously. It's only then that he believes. Now, actually, when you read other religious texts, if you read the Hindu Vedas, I have read some of them, if you read the Quran, you don't experience that. If strange or weird or supernatural things occur in other religious texts, there's this sense in which it's a bit like when you or I are having a dream. You know when you have a dream and you sort of fly around or strange things happen, but you don't question it because you're in the dream. It just happens. The Bible isn't like that. The Bible isn't a dream fantasy world that you step into and weird things happen. No, it's our world in which the author of this world has the power to step in and miracles happen and they are unusual and they evoke astonishment and they actually shake us out of our kind of material mindset and enable us to see that there is an author who is bigger than the laws of nature and it's a way of him revealing himself. So when Jesus walks on water, the gospel accounts do not say, yeah, of course he did. He's the son of God. We're, we're just rolling with miracles here. No, the disciples were terrified. They were afraid. They knew that this was, they, they know that bodies don't walk on water. They knew that this was a sign of something else. So the miracles of the New Testament point us towards a God who is bigger than the laws of nature, who's actually the author of the laws of nature, and point us and evoke us, wonder in us, rather than, you know, expecting us to just throw our minds away and somehow believe in a fantasy world. The second thing um, about the content of the New Testament, the content of the Bible, and why we might believe it is what we might call historical reasons or historical verification. And um, this, this piece is based on um, research by a number of brilliant New Testament scholars, one of whom is a guy called Richard Borkham, uh, based up in Scotland, another called Peter Williams, and uh, Brad mentioned him this morning, he's based at Cambridge. But basically, what these scholars have enabled us to do and helped us to do is to see what it means that the gospel writers were basing what they wrote on eyewitness testimony. And that the detail of what they wrote was scrupulously accurate. It was not slapdash. 
It was not separated from the events by long periods of time. It was scrupulously accurate. Let's think about it this way. I'm going to ask ourselves a few questions to get into this little bit. The first is this. Where were the Gospels written? So according to um, tradition and to, to history, the four Gospels were not all written down in the geographical land of the origin of the story. So the story predominantly happens in Judea, Palestine, and the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not all written there. So Luke's Gospel was most likely written in Antioch. John's Gospel, so uh, that's in Greece. John's Gospel, most likely written in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Mark's Gospel, most likely written in Rome, in Italy. And Matthew's Gospel, probably written in Judea. Right. So if you're sceptical... And lots of people are. Wouldn't you be thinking, how can we trust these accounts of events that happen in one place, but that are actually written by people hundreds of miles away, and yet they're describing all sorts of intricate detail? How can we trust that they're getting those details right when they're not actually writing in Israel, they're writing in Italy, Greece, and Turkey. Now remember, this is before the internet. Hard to imagine, people, I know. But this is before you could just go to Google and type a question in. I was talking to um, one of my sons about um, something to do with writing an essay, and I was telling him about how, you know, when I was a student, you had to write an essay, you had to actually sort of go to a physical place called a library. You had to get these things called books off the shelf and open them up and turn to a particular page and, you know, do your research that way. And he looked astonished and went, why did you bother with all that? You could have just gone online, mummy. And I was like, well, you know, in 1996, 1997, we couldn't do that. If you wanted to send an email when I was at university, you had to go into the computer lab to send an email, and you wouldn't really get a reply for a week. It was quicker to, um, to phone someone. Okay, so before the internet, before access to the sort of information age that we've got, how does someone writing in Turkey, writing hundreds of miles away, how do they get the kinds of details recorded in the Gospels right? How does that happen? It happens if they have access to eyewitness testimony. And we can actually check, we can verify whether it is the case that they had access to eyewitness testimony by asking specific questions. Do these authors know things about the place that they're writing about? Do they know about the geography, the agriculture, the botany? Do they know about the architecture, the traditions, the burial practices, the economics, the language, the type of coins, the law, the personal names, the time differences, the time distances when you travel from one place to another? Do they get those kinds of details right? And I want to suggest to you that it's those kinds of small little details that it is very difficult to get right if you do not know the place. Um, 
in the old days when we used to be able to go anywhere before coronavirus, I traveled quite a lot as part of my work and traveled quite a lot to America. And um, let's take a city in America, Chicago. I traveled there probably more than 20 times in the last 25 years. So I could be trusted to give you a really good account of the geography of Chicago, right? Wrong. I would find it really hard to knit together all those roads, all the networks of different places. I certainly wouldn't know what the kind of preferences and cultural nuances of the different um, locations of Chicago were. So geography is a really, really important way of testing whether the gospel writers were based on eyewitness testimony. Now, when we look at the four gospels, there are a number of places named. The most commonly named place is Jerusalem. There are 66 references to it. You might expect that it's the capital city. The next place is Nazareth, 21 references in the gospels to Nazareth. Then Capernaum, 16 references to Capernaum. But on top of those places, these other places are mentioned. Bethany, Bethlehem, Bethsaida, Jericho, Sidon, Tyre, Anon, Arimathea, Bethpage, Caesarea, Philippi, Cana, Chorazim, Nain. Tiny places. How would somebody writing in Turkey, Greece, Italy know those places? Even maps from Rome of the time didn't mention a lot of these places. The four Gospels mention between 12 and 14 towns each and a total of 23 specific places. Now, if you take an example of a so-called Gospel, an account that was written hundreds of years after the events, something like an apocryphal gospel, something like the gospel of Philip, that does mention two places. It mentions Jerusalem, but we're not going to give him many points for that because everyone knew the capital city. And it mentions Nazareth. But the gospel of Philip doesn't know that Nazareth is even a place. The gospel of Philip thinks Nazareth was Jesus' middle name. That is what happens when people who don't know the details of the location write an account. It's, it's the small things like a place name that begin to fall out. And the other second and third century gospels mention no places at all. Geography doesn't come into it. They just write in total generalities. So this is really, really compelling evidence that when we hold a gospel in our hands, we are reading something written by someone who had eyewitness access to the events. And that is genuinely exciting. I hope you feel excited about this, guys. I feel really excited about that. It is totally unique in any other religious literature in the world. The Bible stands head and shoulders. We can have confidence that what is written down is written by people who had access to eyewitness testimony, people who had observed what they saw. You see, the gospel writers get the travel time between tiny non-entity places that were not on Roman maps. They get 
how long it would have taken to walk between those tiny places. And they include details like that, incidental details that you couldn't have made up and you couldn't possibly know unless you had access to the events. Second argument from history, in case you're not excited enough about geography, is the argument from personal names. Now, um, when we examine the time of Jesus, a study was done by a scholar in um, the early 2000s looking at 3,000 name occurrences of what people were called back then. And so what this actually means is, you know, in archaeology, there are sort of like inscriptions on walls or they're on kind of um, graves or they're in other sources of literature, other kind of books that people wrote. 3,000 occurrences of people's names. And a, a theologian got a hold of this study. It's called the Talilan Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity, Part 1. Not a gripping read, I confess. But a Christian scholar called Richard Borkham picked up this study and in his research in 2006, he compared name occurrence, statistical name popularity in Judea, in the very specific place, quite a small place, where Jesus ministered in the first century, and he compares it with name popularity in the New Testament. Okay, so if you take Palestinian Jewish names in the first century from all the records that we have access to in history at the moment, this is the order of popularity. Number one, Simon. Two, Joseph. Three, Lazarus. Four, Judas. Five, John. Six, Jesus or Joshua. And seven, Ananias. And so it goes on. Now, those names are familiar to us. Why? Because they're there in the New Testament. If you take the nine top most popular Jewish Palestinian male names in the first century outside the New Testament, there are 41% of names used. If you take them inside the New Testament, there are 40% of names used. That is a pattern showing up over four books written by four authors, written across the known world geographically. Turkey, Greece, Italy, Judea. I hope you're excited by this, guys. I'm excited by this. <laughs> it really, really is astonishing. It actually transformed how people, skeptical people, have viewed the New Testament. This, this was published in 2006. Now, in case you're not suitably amazed, another study took the names of Jewish people in the first century, not living in Judea, but living a few miles away in Greco-Roman Egypt. So a, a community of Jewish people living in the time of Jesus, not in Judea, Palestine, but living just a few miles away in Greco-Roman Egypt. Here's the list of name popularity. Number one, Eleazar. Two, Sabbateus. Three, Joseph. Four, Docetius. Five, Pappus. Six, Ptolemaeus. Seven, Samuel. Names like Sabbateus, Docetius, and Pappus are in the top 10 in Egypt. 
Jewish men living in Egypt at the time of Jesus. But they don't occur in the Gospels. Why not? Because the Gospels are not written about people who were living in Greco-Roman Egypt. They're written about a very specific place called Judea Palestine. And the name usage that we can verify from scholarship now, over 2,000 years later, a detail that would be incredibly difficult to get right if you didn't have eyewitness access to what happened, the gospel writers get it right. This is compelling academic evidence that the gospels are trustworthy. Now, we've looked at geography, we've looked at names. We could do something similar with trees, with botany. Do the gospel writers get the types of trees that were very specifically there in the places where they say they were? Guess what? Spoiler alert. They get it right. How is that possible? If they're making this stuff up hundreds of miles away, it isn't possible. Statistically, it is not possible. Let me give you one more example about the names. Because it's not just that they get um, the, the statistical um, proportion of name usage um, right. They also get um, what you would know if you were in the culture, the popularity of names right. So they know when a name is popular and when it isn't. And they know to differentiate that, even without, you know, the charts that we have access to. So let's take Matthew chapter 10 as an example. So you've got the list of disciples. I don't know how you feel about lists in your Bible reading. I'm often tempted to skip over lists. But actually, this list is really significant, and I'll show you why. Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4. There was Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother. Now, Simon is number one on the list of most popular names. So Simon's name need to be, needed to be distinguished. There would have been hundreds of Simons. So he says that there was Simon, who was also called Peter. That's a distinguishing mark. And this is the guy he's related to, Andrew. Then there's James. Now, he's number 11 on the list of most popular names. That's a high-ranking name. And so he's given a distinguishing feature. He's the son of Zebedee. And then there's John. He's number five on the list, a high-ranking name. He's his brother. So again, there's something that you need to know. It's not this John or that one. It's this one. But then comes Philip in the list. Now, Philip is number 61 on the list of most popular male Jewish names in the first century in Judea. And guess what? They don't feel the need to distinguish which Philip, because it's not a common name. Everyone knew who Philip was, so there's just plain old Philip. Bartholomew, he's number 50 on the list. That's, that's really um, low on the list in, the, in, in a sense, you know, so he doesn't need a qualification. Thomas is not even in the top 100 of most popular names, so he's plain old Thomas. Matthew, he's number nine. He's the tax collector. James, the other James, he's number 11. He's the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, only number 39 on the list of most popular names. So no distinguishing him. He's just Thaddeus. Simon, number one again. He's the Canaanian. And Judas Iscariot, number four. 
who also betrayed him. These statistics have only been known by academics since 2003. Yet there is this extraordinary correlation between the evidence outside of the Bible and what is written inside the Bible. Not just a statistical um, imaging, 40 versus 41%, but actually qualifying when names were popular and not when they weren't. This is extraordinary evidence that the Gospels can be trusted, that what they wrote was scrupulously accurate. So where does that leave you today? There's loads more we could talk about. I've written a book about this called Why Trust the Bible. If this sort of floats your boat, have a look at that book. It's looking at kind of 10 questions that people have about the Bible. I think there are really two things I'd like to finish with. The first is, have you as a Christian, if you are here as a follower of Jesus, have you grasped how astonishing, how outstanding the New Testament is in ancient literature, just purely in literary terms? Have you grasped how good our God is, that he has enabled us to have this kind of evidence so that we can have trust that isn't a leap in the dark, but trust in something that is solid, God himself and his word. You know, um, the New Testament uh, speaks about us having faith. It speaks about faith and um, this word, this Greek word, pistis, is the word for faith. But that word actually means to have been persuaded. It has this sense that there's evidence and truth and a solid foundation. And I want to encourage you, if you're here today, um, perhaps a new believer or you've been a believer for a long time, that even as scholars and academics all around the world are, are studying this and every question and every skepticism has been thrown at the Bible. But time and time again, what is revealed is that the Bible can be trusted, that it is a solid foundation. So for us, even in our worship, as we think of our God, who actually cared enough for us, it mattered enough for him that our minds matter, that he's given us evidence of himself that is solid. And actually that's important when we go through hard times, that our faith isn't just based on circumstance or feeling, but there is a solid foundation of truth that we can trust. And the second thing I'd really love you to take away from this is that the Bible is something that you can be confident in, in our culture today, including in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, that the Bible um, is, is worthy of being included in your daily conversations, including with people who don't have faith. That you can be confident that when you refer to the Bible, this is not something that is easily knocked down or, or dismissed. 
So those are the two thoughts I'd love to leave you with, and I hope that it encourages you in your own reading of the Bible and your own worship of our great God, that there's great cause for for confidence in his truth, but also an encouragement um, in your mission and evangelism as you reach out. So um, we are there at the end of our session. It's 45. I'm going to pray for us and then um, release us. I don't know what happens next. I think I just stop. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for that man on the other side of the world, the keeper of the Holy Quran, who'd been praying for years that he could have a Bible. And I want to pray for us um, gathered across this, this site right now. I pray that you would bring us across the path of people who are longing for your word, who are praying in the night, God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me. And I pray that you would make us, um, you would encourage us and fill us with courage as your people, and that you would give us opportunity, those divine appointments, to come across people who are hungry for you, and that we might be those who step out and speak up and reach out with your word to this starving world. And I pray for those who are in this place who've perhaps had their confidence in the Bible shaken. I pray that you would encourage hearts, that your word is true, and that you, the author, Lord Jesus, that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.